Well, I have a daughter that is going to turn three next month. And uh, yeah, all right, thank you. Thank you. I'll let her know you said that. Um, but, you know, there, there, ever since she's been born, uh, my wife and I have been having this conversation and uh, there's this question I've been dreading to answer. And I don't know if it's just because she's seen stuff on TV or, or whatever, but um, she because, but she just asks like some of the craziest stuff. Like today uh, we all came together to church and um, like my wife and I are having this conversation in the front. The two kids are in the back and she stops and she says, Poppy. And I said, yes, she says, who's Darth Vader? Uh, so, I mean, there's this like, you know, some of you are like, wow, you're really teaching her well. Thank you. Um, so anyway, she's she's asking questions. But anyway, so she comes up to us the other day and she says, uh, Mommy, Poppy, um, who's Santa? And I'm like, man, I really was hoping to not have to deal with this until she was like 10. But anyway, uh, so we decide now my wife and I've been having this ongoing conversation and, and this is kind of the. The back and forth that we have. Um, I think that having like um, imagination is really good. So like I'm not I don't have a problem with, you know, little kids thinking that, you know, oh, if I put my tooth under the pillow, the tooth fairy comes, you know, and and all that. Um, I, I don't have a problem with that. On the other hand, I want my daughter to know the real meaning of Christmas, you know, that God sent his son into the world because of his great love for us. So anyway, so she asked us the question and we decided to tell her the truth. And so my wife says to her. Um, well, uh, Mia, uh, Santa is actually uh, make-believe, but there was uh, a person that we based it from, that Santa was actually someone uh, by the name of Nicholas, and um, he was a guy who loved Jesus, and he was someone that would go around in where, he, where the village that he lived and give gifts to children. Um, they would actually leave their shoes out, and he would put coins uh, in their shoes as they were uh, as they were walking, um, as, as he was going through the neighborhood. And so, anyway, she kind of explains the historical, you know, Wikipedia version of uh, who, who Santa is, which is correct. And, um, and then she says to me, she says, now, Poppy, is there anything you'd like to add? And I said, well, thank you very much. There is a couple things I'd like to add to that. Uh, and I said, I actually have some notes of some things that I wanted to share with you based on this that I've had since you were born. I said, so, Mia, are you ready? Oh, yes, Poppy, I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> now, I said, the question that we're going to answer, Mia, is, is the concept of Santa even possible? Is it plausible? Is it, is it reality? Is it fiction? What is it? And she's totally confused. And I'm like, let's start. Let me just read some of these notes that I have. Uh, there's two billion children, that is, people under the age of 18 in the world, but since Santa doesn't appear to handle Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children, that reduces the workload to 15% of the total. That's 378 million, according to the population uh, Reference Bureau. Now, at an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes. Now, one presumes that there's at least one good child in each of their homes. Now, she's still with me at this point. And I said, Santa has 31 hours with which to deliver all of the presents based on the fact that there's different time zones, rotation of the earth, and assuming that he travels east to west, which only seems logical. Now, this works out to... Uh, 822.6 visits per second. That's to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one-thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up the chimney, get back in the sleigh, and move on to the next house. Now, assuming that these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth, which, of course, we know is false, but we're going to make it so just for the sake of our study, um, we're going to accept those. We're talking about 0.78 miles per household, a total trip of 75 and a half million miles 
in 31 hours, not counting the stop to stop to do what most of us have to do at least once every 31 hours, plus eating, etc. Now, I look at her and she's like looking at me kind of cross-eyed, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's okay, honey, it's going to make sense at the end. Let's keep going. The payload of the sleigh adds another interesting element, which I think you'll find very interesting. Um, assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, which weighs about two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,000 tons, not including Santa, who, as you know, is depicted as overweight. Now, that would take 214,200 reindeer to push this load. Now, 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per hour creates enormous air resistance. It will heat up the reindeer at the same fashion that a spacecraft re-enters Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short, these reindeer would burst into flames almost instantaneously, exposing the reindeer behind them and creating a deafening sonic boom in their wake. The entire reindeer team would be vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second. Santa, meanwhile would be subjected to centrifugal forces of 17,500 uh, 17, times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa, which, let's be honest, is a very conservative amount, uh, weight, would be pinned to the back of the sleigh at the 4.3 million pounds of force. In conclusion, Mia, if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he is now dead. Um, and Merry Christmas. Um, so, now, why, the reason I say that and, and I tell you that story is, is because um, there, there's some things that, that happen uh, at Christmas that are seemingly impossible, like Santa being able to deliver all the presents in the given time that he has. At Christmas, there's also another story that people sometimes have problems with, and that is a virgin giving birth to a son. And yet, you know that that's exactly what the Bible predicted would take place 850 years before it happened. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, it says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is a word that means God with us. Now, here's the odd part to me. The odd part to me in this story is not that God that, his, that, that God's son would be born in a miraculous way. To me, that, ma- that part makes sense. Because if I was God, I would want my son to be born in dramatic fashion. So God sending his son being born of a virgin, that makes sense to me. The part that is uh, the odd part for me is Mary's attitude during this whole thing. You see, you've got to understand what happens here with, with Mary once she starts walking through this season of her life. She gets pregnant as a woman that is betrothed but not married. It's, it's the Hebrew form of engagement. Um, and so she's engaged, but she hasn't consummated her marriage. And so she, she's there, and now she's pregnant. And so now for the rest of her life, she, she'll be hearing whispers about her and the odd circumstances surrounding the birth of her first child. And she'd be the butt end of jokes. She'd be ridiculed. In fact, when those who were the opponents, that, the people that opposed Jesus, when, they would, the, 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 when the conversation would begin to escalate, when it would get problematic, when I mean, there would just be an argument and Jesus would stump them and they would get upset at Jesus over the questions that he was asking, over the answers that he was giving, they would always come back to this issue of his birth. 
I'll give you one example in the Gospel of John, verse 8. It says, and they, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. You see, right as the, the, the argument starts heating up, they always go back to this issue and the mysterious surroundings concerning his birth. And see, yet even knowing that ridicule would be a possibility, she is still overjoyed at the fact that she's been counted worthy to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, you've got to understand that the idea of a Savior being born is not a new concept. The idea of a Savior being born goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, many of you are familiar with the story, right? There's a tree, there's two people, there's a serpent, there's a piece of fruit, good and evil, you know, all that happens. Someone takes a bite, everything goes haywire. That's a very, that's kind of like, I guess like a Mad Libs version of the story. But nonetheless, um, that, that's kind of the deal that goes on. But then here's what God says when he shows up on the scene and realizes that mankind has now fallen into sin. And he says this, he says uh, to the woman, he says, but I will put enmity between you and the serpent. And he says that, and in fact, here's, he talks about then the seed of the woman. That, will, that, that the, seed, the seed of the woman, that the serpent will strike his heel, but then he will end up crushing his head. Now, once again, I don't want to go on Discovery Channel on you, but you, as, if you're aware, you know, if you were in like health class or your parents ever had that conversation with you, um, you know that like the seed doesn't come from the woman, right? The seed comes from the man, the egg comes from the woman, those two get together and now you have pregnancy, birth, children, and all that good stuff. But here's here's the deal. So the fact that God now starts talking about the seed of the woman is already creating the inference that the beginning of that there would be a savior who was born. In fact, um, what, what theologians from, you know, centuries, they called that. And this is the Latin term, the proto evangelicum, simply referring that as the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, that there would be this the savior who was born, the, the seed of the woman. But see, here's the thing is that Eve she gives birth to a son. And here's what she she says when she gives birth to him. She says, I have acquired the man from the Lord. That's why she says why. And in fact, she gives birth to a son, her firstborn son. His name is Cain. You may have heard of him. And Cain, his story doesn't turn out so good. But the word Cain means acquired. And so she gives birth to Cain and she says, I have acquired the man. She says that God said that, you know, we messed up. And that God was going to send us a savior. And then I've had a child. This is the one. He, he is the, going to be the savior. Well, if you know the story, things don't really turn out so well uh, for for Cain. And then she has another son by the name. Um, in fact, let me just tell you what, what the word means. She has another son. And here's what she says. She says she has another son. And she says, oh, it's just vanity. In fact, she has another son. And this is what she names him. The word simply means this. The name Abel, Abel, means a sigh, a breath, just basically a, 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 a phrase that means I'm over it. And that's she gives now birth to this other son. And she says, if this if I thought I had acquired the man, he wasn't the man. This other one is, is God ever going to send us the savior and get us out of the situation that we're in because we ate the fruit, we fell into sin. And now what? And so every woman now from Eve up until the time of 
Jesus' birth, had had what was called by the Hebrews the messianic expectation. That there was the hope that there would be a Savior who was born. In fact, in, in, in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's called um, the desire of women, or in another passage, it's called the desire of nations. Um, if you, you know your Christmas carols, that's a common phrase in Christmas carols, is the term desire of nations. And so, and the idea is this, is that it was the desire of every Hebrew woman who gave birth to give birth to the Messiah. And so there was this messianic expectation and, and, and the times surrounding the birth of Jesus, the, the, the messianic expectation was at the point of like a fever pitch that people were just knowing that the Messiah was somehow going to come and that, that now it, it was really going to happen. Rome had taken over and were oppressing the people of Israel. And the more that they were oppressed, the more that they were crying out for a savior. And it modeled simply what was happening when they were slaves in Egypt. The more they cried out, God answered and sent them Moses, who was to be a savior, a deliverer for them. And now here they are feeling oppressed and they're saying, well, maybe now God would send us the savior, the deliverer that we hoped he would send us. And listen, now you can understand. You can understand just this feeling of saying, God, you've chosen me. That this woman, this teenager by the name of Mary has. And so what I want to do for the time that we have um, this morning is I want to spend our time talking about working our way through the account of how Mary finds out she's going to give birth to the Messiah. But see, so many times we focus on what God is going to do through her. And that is that God through her is going to give birth to Messiah. But here's what I want to do. I want to focus on what's happening in her based on the news that she hears that she's going to give the give birth to the Messiah. Because every time that she looked back on this story, she would remember three amazing things that God did that happened in her. And if I can just encourage you in this, is that if we look at the Christmas story, can we just maybe note that there's something that God wants to do, these three things that God wants to do in us as well. Because I just want to share this with you, and it's so important, is that if we could be reminded of these things, and if we could apply these things to our lives, listen, it would impact our lives in an amazing way. That Christmas shouldn't just be just kind of another thing. Christmas wouldn't just be, well, we're going to buy the presents, we're going to have the dinner and all that stuff, but instead it would be something much greater. It would be a reminder to us of not just what God is doing uh, to us or through us, but instead the season reminds us of what God wants to do in us. How do I know? Because when Mary comes face to face with these three truths, she's never the same. In fact, she realizes that God has been preparing her for this all of her life. And that's the work that Christus is supposed to do in you and supposed to do in me. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. That's where we're, that's where we're going to pick it up in our story. And we're going to start, actually, in verse 26. And here's what we read. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw this, she was troubled at the saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And if you pause there, please, and give me your attention, I want to give you this first Christmas reminder, if I could, and that is that Christmas reminds me that I'm called by God. That I'm called by God. You see, God's calling is not based on your ability, your goodness, and make, He's not making a list to see who's been naughty or nice. Instead, God's calling is based on His grace and His choosing. 
Jesus said this. He said, you did not choose me. I chose you. And so there's this this amazing thing that happens where I say, well, I, I came to know Jesus. I chose him. Yes. But at the same time, God is saying, I chose you. And so there's this wonderful marrying of these two ideas. But the thing that happens at Christmas is that we, we are reminded of this, is that, listen, it's not because I'm so good. It's not because I'm so smart. It's not because um, of anything. It's because God is so, has been very, very gracious to me. If you're here and you're someone who walks with Jesus and God has forgiven you, listen, it's because God has chosen you. For whatever reason, in his economy, he's decided to choose you. I had this, um, I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. I, I uh, was contacted by someone who wanted to do an interview with me based on the last book that I wrote. And uh, I said, sure. So we set up a time. And, and um, so they started asking me kind of like the, you know, easy questions up front. So I said, Bob, so what got you interested in writing? And did you take creative writing classes in high school or college that kind of got you interested in all that? And, and I, can I just be real honest with you? I mean, I know it's Christmas. I know I'm a pastor, but I so wanted to lie because um, I didn't, you know, and, and I just I thought it would sound really good. that Oh, I majored in English literature and college and, you know, um, and then, you know, whatever, talk to some, you know, and then I interned with some writer. You know, I just uh, I wanted to make something up, but I didn't. And I said, well, and I said, well, not exactly. I said, no. I said, well, if you want to talk about my 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 scholastic career, um, you know, what got me writing is that I failed all four all four years of English in high school. And then I had to go to summer school every year um, to, to get make up those credits. And so, you know, my. My mom used to say that I'm the kid who hates school the most, um, I, I, that likes school the least, but yet I go the most because I go not only all, all, all year and then I go over the summer as well just to make it, you know, just to make it complete. So I actually only have like two weeks off from school all year because I just kept going. And then when all my friends graduated, um, I had to go back for another year because you know, you know how exciting that is. Um, so I was on like the five-year plan in, in high school and... Um, and then I just like took remedial. I couldn't take English 1101 in college because my I didn't had never even taken the SAT. I'd barely heard of what it was, and I didn't even know what it stood for. Um, they said, "Oh, did you take the SAT?" I said, "No, I sat a while ago, so I'm good." Um, and uh, and so I like I didn't really know what that was, and so but then you know I I went to college and, and graduated and all that, and um, and, and so. So I'm telling him this, this whole thing. I'm like, listen, the only creative writing I did was when I would forge my mom's name on progress reports. Um, that was kind of the best I did. And so how I write books, I have no idea how that works and why people read them. I have no idea. So the uh, no would be the answer to your question. Next question. And he's and the guy is like stunned. Uh, I, I, um, OK. And, and, and can I just tell you this? That that's part of what Christmas does. It reminds us that God called this amazing woman by the name of Mary. Or, or Miriam in Hebrew, as her name is, to give birth to the, the Savior of the world. And, and, and here's the thing that, that, that happens. The thing that happens is this, is that you'd look on and you'd say, well, well why would God choose her over, over someone else? Well, it's because God just decided. It's, that's the thing that why Mary is so startled. She's so startled because she walks into her home and there's this angel standing there, which I'm guessing would kind of startle any of us. And she's saying, you know, what is this all about? But God, she starts hearing this and she's like, no, 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 this isn't actually supposed to be happening to me. This is supposed to be happening to somebody else. And then he gives Mary the greeting that, that, that so he says, you know, the Lord is with you. Now, when an angel shows up and says the Lord is with you, you can do this some other sometime. You can kind of go through the Bible. And when God says that to someone, that always means God's going to do something great with that person. 
Um, I'll give you one when God uh, finds a guy by the name of Gideon and he's going to make him this great warrior that is going to defeat the Midianites, the enemies of Israel. He says this. He says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, this is in Judges 6.12, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So Mary hears the greeting and she knows what it means and that's why it says that she's troubled or literally it means that she's puzzled in the original language saying like, hold on, are you sure you've got the right address? Uh, why? This is why she's like the angel that appeared. This is the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Daniel right in Babylon and gave him the whole revelation of when the Messiah was going to come, gave him the time frame. This is the same angel that's standing in my living room. And I'm thinking maybe you're in the wrong place. And yet here's what happens. What she's about to learn is that God is going to do something amazing, not only through her, but in her. You see, do you really believe that God has called you to do great things? If you don't, you should. Because here's what Jesus said of John the Baptist, who he said was the greatest man ever born, and that's pretty high praise coming from Jesus. But he would say these words, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now think about that. John is the greatest, but he says that if you're part of the kingdom, you've come to know Jesus, you're walking with him, you're following him, you even have the potential for greater greatness than John. And you might be thinking like, but greatness? I mean, I don't know. My family's from Cuba. You know, that. how's that? You know, like, I don't think so. I mean, that's what Mary was thinking. Not that her family was from Cuba. But she was thinking, listen... Don't you realize she's thinking this? I'm from Nazareth. Listen, I was in Nazareth 10 years ago. Um, and we, were, we were on a tour. I was leading a tour in Israel with a bunch of college students. And um, I remember the first day uh, we like literally got into Tel Aviv and we got on, on the, the bus and we started touring. And then um, towards the end of the day, we got to Nazareth. And this is what they said. They literally said this to us. Uh, they said, listen, don't get go, don't go too far from the bus because this is not a good neighborhood. And uh, the thing is this. 2,000 years later, it's still a bad neighborhood when Mary and, and the angel Jesus shows up. Still a bad neighborhood then. It, it was a rough neighborhood. It was kind of like a nowhere town because people didn't say, oh, I'm going to go to Nazareth. Nazareth was a place that you drove past to get to where you were going. If you were going to Galilee, that, that made sense because that was a metropolitan area. And then if you were in Galilee, you were going to Jerusalem. That made sense because that was the, the, the capital. And so that, that would make sense. But you know, have you ever been on a road trip and then you had to stop at this, like, you know, this one exit in the middle of nowhere and all there is is a gas station. And it's like, you know, right next to it's like Joe's hot dogs. You know, that's it. It's the only place to eat. You stop, you get gas, you use the restroom, you buy a soda and you're like, let's get out of here before we get mugged. That is Nazareth. All right. And so she, the angel shows up and says, hey, guess what? God is going to do something great for you and you're destined for greatness. And, and, and the idea is this, like, are you sure? Because this is Nazareth. You may have taken a wrong turn. Because if you're going to, if, if you're talking about who's going to give birth to the Messiah, shouldn't that be someone from Jerusalem? That would just make sense, right? Shouldn't it make sense that it was someone from somewhere else? In fact, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is calling his disciples, he calls a young man by the name of Philip. And then Philip, it says he found Nathaniel and, it's t- and he told him, this is in John chapter one, he says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is his response. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And then Philip says, come and see. You see, the town was nothing. 
And the thought was that if God was going to call someone, he was going to do something else. But here's instead what happens. God calls an unlikely woman from an unlikely town to be the most important woman in history because she was giving birth to the Messiah, to the promised one. You see, the Apostle Paul would write it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, brothers, think of who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the things which were despised, the things which are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What's the point? The point is that it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter where you've been, but if you're within an earshot of my voice and you're you're hearing me, here's what I'm telling you, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have the call of God on your life. And listen, the mission that you have, the thing that Christmas reminds us of every year, is that our role in life is to find what that thing is and to walk in that all the days of our life as we follow Him. Well, the story continues in verse 30, and here's what we read. If you continue with me in Luke chapter one, it says, and then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive uh, in your womb and give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who will be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative has also conceived a son in her old age. And now this is the sixth month for her who was called barren for with God, nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, let me give you the second Christmas reminder. It's this. It's that Christmas reminds me that nothing is impossible, that nothing is impossible. Here's what I mean. When I was um, when I was seven years old, my dad took me to Meadow Glen Mall in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, and uh, he was going to buy me a pair of kangaroos. Anybody down with kangaroos? All right few of you now kangaroos were these awesome shoes that had a zipper on the side and you could fit about 35 cents like a quarter and a dime that's about that and so i was like man i don't even need pockets my shoes have pockets you know but all you could fit was like a dime you know and like a piece of you know a tootsie roll or something but that's it you know and so anyway so he went and my dad had this you know friend i thought it was a good friend but it was a guy that he knew his name was russell and russell um worked at the shoe store and now my, russell was really tall. And for some reason, I thought Russell was Bill Russell. Now, for those of you that don't know who Bill Russell is, Bill Russell is one of, first of all, uh, there's like God and then like in Boston, right underneath it is like Larry Bird, Bill, Bill Russell, you know, like the 2004 Red Sox right there. They're like, you know, not quite God yet a little bit more than, than a human. And so um, Bill Russell is one of the most famous NBA players of all time. He's what, 10, world, uh, 10 championships, a couple of MVPs. I mean, he was one of the greatest basketball players ever. And I thought that that guy was Bill Russell. Now, why I thought one of the greatest NBA players working in a shoe store is another conversation entirely. But 
Um, anyway, one day we're having this, this we're, we're talking, I'm, I'm getting the, my kangaroos, and my dad and him, every time they went in, they talk about, talk about basketball. And so, um, that's why I thought he was Bill Russell, because he, you know, he's talking about basketball all the time. And so, anyway, he says to me, and he said, he, t- he turns to my dad, and he said, he points to me, and he says, do you see this little man? I'm seven. Do you see this little man? With the right training, I could turn him into an NBA star. That's when I knew he was Bill Russell. And I'm like, he's going to train me. I mean, he will be, I will be Daniel's son. He will be Mr. Miyagi. I mean, this is it right here, right? This is it. And so, you know, that had such an effect on me. I mean, it was like a couple of years later, I joined a basketball league. I mean, I was asking for, you know, like, oh, what do you want? I want high tops. Why? Because that's what... If I'm going to be an NBA star, that's what I got to do, you know, Why? because this guy in a shoe store that I thought was one of the greatest players in basketball history who ended up just being a guy that worked in a shoe store told me that I had the potential um, to 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 be great. And here's the thing. Um, So what do you believe? What do you do if God comes to you and tells you that he's going to do something great through you? Here's what most people do. Most people hear that God wants to do something great through them, and here's the, they start listing all of their um, bad character flaws. Like, well, here's all the problems I have, and here's why it's impossible that that could take place. And what we do is that we end up trying to nullify the thing that God wants to do by the, by the human impossibility. But see, when God is going to do something, it has nothing about human possibility because it's in the realm of the impossible that God likes to dwell in. And see, that's the thing is that uh, Mary, this woman of faith, here's what she does. She what makes her such a woman of faith is that she doesn't say, oh, God, Lord, that's impossible for you to do that. Lord, there's no way. Don't you understand? I'm not I'm not married. I'm not I'm only engaged. Instead, here's what she says. She says, how can this be? She says, God, how are you going to pull this one off? Now, see, that is what a person of faith says. When God tells another couple about uh who are having some difficulty having children, that he's going to give them a son. He tells a guy by the name of Abraham, who's been trying to have kids for a long time. He's 100 years old. His wife is 90. And he says, you know, you're going to, he tells him, you're going to have a son. And here's what Abraham does. He laughs. And he says, now this is going to be one that people talk about. That a, that a 100-year-old guy and his 90-year-old wife gave birth. And he just starts laughing. In fact, let me read it to you in Genesis 17. It says, And Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, Will a man be born? Uh, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He, I mean, he, he laughs. And here's the thing that's amazing to me is that a year later they have a son who's born. And you know what he names them? He names the child Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. In fact, it means hysterical laughter. And, and that's why um, in, in, uh, in your notes, in, in Genesis chapter 21, this is Sarah speaking. She says, God has brought me Isaac, laughter, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You see, what Christmas should remind us of is that with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, the impossible is the place where God likes to dwell. And once we say, God, this is impossible, God now says, now it's my turn to act. Jesus would say it this way. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
So the question that we have to answer is, so what's impossible right now? What is impossible? You say, well, pastor, here's the thing. My my marriage right now, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's at a breaking point. And I don't see that it's possible for us to be able to repair this. And can I just encourage you in this? If Christmas reminds us of anything, it's that God makes the impossible happen. You say, well, the thing is, is that financially with my career, I mean, it's just it, things are just really messed up and there's cutbacks and there's rumors. And I think that it's not going to happen and there's no way to escape it this time. And I, I'm going to have to start over. Listen, can I just tell you this, that with God, all things are possible. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your kids and you say, I just how, how is this going to get fixed? With God, all things are possible. And listen, that's what Christmas should be reminding us of. Let me give you the last one. Probably my favorite one. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit if I can um, towards the end of chapter one. But um, what's going to what happens is, is that after she hears this news, um, Mary goes to see um, she goes to see her relative, um, the mother of John the Baptist, or, or Elizabeth. She goes to see her and spend some time with her and then tell her everything that's happened. And so they're rejoicing together. And then here's what she says in verse 46. It says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant and behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed for he who was mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. And let me give you the last one. This is so important. And that is that Christmas reminds us that God's word matters. It reminds us that God's word matters. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a second, but I want to tell you a story first. Um, this is not in the Bible. In fact, this is just a tradition. So um, could be true, could not be true. But I think some scholars believe it is. And if it is, I think it gives us a little bit of color into some of Mary's background and, and the, the par- Mary's parents and their background and, and and the story goes as follows is that uh, Mary's parents were unable to have children and so her dad goes into the wilderness and there um, in in the wilderness he has this vision um, of an angel and the angel says to him that he to return home and that he, he's going to have a child and then when he does soon after that uh, Mary is born and so just like how in the story of Samuel Hannah um, and her husband Elkanah Hannah is not able to have children if you were here last week and you saw us dedicate my son Alexander, then you know that um, that was a, a, a tradition that we do as Christians, but that began um, in, in the times of the temple um, in, in, in the Hebrew culture. And so what happens is, is that now they, um, they go and they dedicate young Samuel who was born. Well, um, the tradition says that they went and dedicated Mary as well when she was born. And at the age of three or four, she went and stayed in the temple and served from about three to four till about 12 uh, years old. Now, the reason why that's so important is because if that's the case, it means that she would have been taught the scriptures, would have been taught Torah by 
the um, by the priests themselves. That they would have been the ones teaching Torah to her, teaching the scriptures to her. Now, here's why this is really important. The reason why this is all important is because when she now is rejoicing over what it is that God is doing, that that in her is going to be the Messiah that's going to be birthed, the savior of the world. She bursts into this prayer of thanksgiving. Now, the thing that's important for us to understand is that in your Bible and in mine, it's from verses 46, um, uh, 36 to 45, so it's 10 verses. But in those 10 verses, she rattles off 19 passages of Scripture from the Hebrew Scriptures. And listen, it's not because she had a little card that she... It was just something that was overflowing from her heart. And it was from all over. Passages from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, from the Psalms, from Prov- all over the, pa- the, the Scriptures. She's just, it's just, just coming out of her. Why and how? Why? Because she's, a, she's someone who memorized God's Word. The Bible tells us this in, in Psalm 119. It says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, I, I'm of the belief that her understanding of the scriptures is what caused her to rejoice in a time that most people would be freaking out. You see, and I believe the same thing is true for us. You see, I'm looking at, I, I, you see the nativity scene. And you're like, why aren't these people freaking out? It's because they understood the scriptures. Well, why, why is it then in our situation that it is what we do freak out? Maybe it is because we don't understand the Scriptures. And maybe if we really understood the background as to what God was doing in our lives and what God's goal was for our lives, that even in the difficulties that we go through, we would recognize that, hey, God, there's something here happening in the background that God wants to do. And our framework of understanding the scriptures would now be able to color in some of the gray areas that we're not really sure what it is that God is doing. And then what happens? And then what would cause us to panic is now what would cause us to pray and give thanks to what God was actually doing because there really is something amazing that happens when you're a person who follows jesus is that you begin to pray in your prayer it's not like oh i stop and then i go into a closet and i pray for eight hours no no no. but prayer just becomes something that you do it becomes something as natural as breathing in fact in in the book of first thessalonians the apostle paul would say to pray without ceasing i mean how do you pray without ceasing and still have a job how do you do that if you've got to go into a closet, right, and you've got to go... No, but see, that turn to pray without ceasing, it's a word picture, and it talks about having like this tickle in the back of your throat. And you ever have one of those, and you're just like... <clears throat> and then you go... <clears throat> <clears throat> That's what he says to pray without ceasing. That there's just this attitude that we have throughout our day that we just it creates an awareness as to what's going on. My daughter... Um, most of the time in our home, my daughter prays before uh, we eat. She's uh, she's almost three, and so probably a few months ago we started this, and so she she's the one who does the praying um, most of the time. And we just taught her a very simple prayer to pray, and the prayer goes like this: it just says, "Dear God, thank you for this food. Thank you for our family. In Jesus' name, Amen." And then we all clap. That's pretty much. It doesn't matter where we are. Uh, you know, if we're in a restaurant, if we're at home, wherever. Um, we all we she prays, we clap and then that's it. Well, the other day um, she she had this ball uh, that I got her and now I'm questioning that decision. Um, and so she has this ball and she's not supposed to throw a ball, a ball in the house, but um, she decided that she was going to throw it anyway. She decided she was going to play catch with her brother. 
And so she's, um, she has the ball. She throws it at her bu- brother and like pegs him in the head uh, with the ball. Uh, my son, who's going to be five months this week or five months on Tuesday, um, he starts crying. So we, Carrie and I come out because we're right around the corner. Um, there, she's in the living room. We're in the kitchen. So we walk out. And so, you know, she goes and gets the ball. So she's got like the, the, the you know, the, the, the weapon in her hand. You know, she's got the evidence in her hand. And then my son is crying. So I go to ask her what happened. And she says, no, I'm playing catch with Xander. And he didn't catch the ball. It hit him in the head. And, um, and I'm like, Mama, he doesn't know how to catch yet. He can't even say his name. That's like that comes first before being able to play catch. And so anyway, so then Carrie goes to see him and he's got like this little red mark on his head. And, and she says, um, and, and Carrie says to her, she says, you better pray that he's OK. And she goes, dear God, thank you for this food. Thank you for our family and in Jesus name. And um, <laughs> true story. Um, and, and I'm telling you um, that there is something there is something about learning to pray that it becomes just like breathing. And then here's what happens. One of the questions that, that people ask me all the time is I want to pray for this. But how do I know if praying for this thing is, is really in God's will? And I would say, well, maybe the, the, the issue is don't pray for that. But instead, when you pray, just pray the scriptures, because you know that praying the scriptures is always in God's will. And so then just learn the scriptures. What situation are you in? And just learn the scriptures that have to do with that situation. Just pray those things over and over again. And you're going to find that those prayers, those passages of scripture are now in your heart. And it changes your disposition as to what's going on, because that's really the key. And that's the thing that Christmas should remind us of, is that when we remember the importance of God's word in our life, not just because it tells us what to do and what not to do, but instead the importance of God's word is that it now begins to frame our lives and frame our situations frame our difficulties, frame our joys, frame our sorrows. It begins to frame everything differently than maybe we would have seen things if we didn't know what it is that God was going to do. You see, there's so many things that make this woman so amazing. Um, But one of the things, besides praying this prayer, which is, you know, called by scholars the Magnificat, you know, which is because it starts, my soul magnifies the Lord. But the thing that makes her so amazing, I believe, is this other passage, this other story that she's not even the main character and Jesus is the main character. But she has this one phrase that I've always thought, man, if we could obey that, we'd be so much better off. It's, in, it's not in your notes, but just jot down John chapter 2. This is where we're going to close it. It says this. This is John chapter 2, 1 to 5. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus replies, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. And see, I believe that the message of Mary's life is simply that phrase. The message of Mary's life was one of obedience to God. And then her son is born, the savior of the world. And she tells those at the place where Jesus performs his first miracle. She says to them and she says, you see him, my son, Jesus, do whatever he tells you to do. My friends, if I can share one thing with you, if you say, what's the one thing that would be great for me to do for Christmas? Then it would be that whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You see, 
When, when, you, when you think about that, whatever he tells you to do, do it. What, what, what does that even mean? Here's what Jesus says when he calls people. Here's what he says. Follow me. That's what Jesus is asking of each of us. This is what he says. He says, follow me. That's the call. Oh, no, no. I'm a Christian because I did First Communion. I did that. No, that's not what Jesus is asking. He says this. Follow me. Follow me. Model and pattern your life after the person of Jesus. That's what he means by follow me. And here's how that begins. It begins by inviting Christ to come into our lives. It begins by seeing the finished work of Jesus, the cross, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and three days later, he rose again. And some say that's impossible. And I would say God is in the business of doing the impossible. But it begins there. That when we say, here's what I know, is that I've fallen short of God's standard. All of us have. And even though we've fallen short of God's standard, here's what I also know, is that God made a way for me to have a relationship with God. Through His Son, Jesus. And so if you've never made that decision, then listen, that's the reason you're here. Maybe you have made that decision, but you've kind of wandered off. Can I just encourage you in this? Is that maybe the reason God has you here is because God is calling you back and He's asking you the question, will you follow me? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. And what I want to do for those of you that want to make that decision, can I just share this with you? I just want to lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic formula or anything like that, but they might be my words, but I pray more than anything that they express your heart. That you, the thing that you'd want to share to God and say to God, but maybe you you can't quite articulate it. And that's all right. So let's pray together. And God, I want to thank you so much for the fact that you did call an ordinary girl from an ordinary town to do an extraordinary thing. And God, I pray that we would have the kind of faith, the kind of trust, be the kind of people who follow you. And so, Lord, I pray for those that want to make that decision this morning to follow you. I ask that as they pray, that you would hear, that you would act, that you would respond in a way that changes their lives forever. Those of you that want to make that decision this morning, I just want to ask you, repeat, repeat this prayer with me and just repeat it out loud. Just say, Dear God, I invite you inside. And I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to follow you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen.